All right, well, good morning, Salem. All right, hey, yeah, there it is. You know, I don't know about you guys, but uh, something that has just really stuck out to me this morning as we were singing, it's just these two words, uh, genuineness and joy. Like, there's something about being together and worshiping together that when song, uh, music, uh, notes, words come out of our mouth, uh, there is an authenticity, there is a genuineness and a joy, and I absolutely love it. So, uh, my name is Seth, I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Salem, and uh, if I've not gotten a chance to meet you, I'd love the chance to meet you. Uh, today's our fall kickoff, and so we're glad you guys are here. We're starting a new series uh, this morning, and it's called uh, Rooted, and so hopefully you got a chance uh, to get a uh, journal as well as uh, one of these, these prayer cards, and it's not like our normal prayer card. It actually has uh, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 uh, on the back, uh, and the reason being, and we're going to talk about this more, and you'll probably understand uh, at the end of the, our time this morning why this is so significant, but this is one of the most powerful prayers uh, in all of Scripture. Just truly, just truly uh, powerful. And so my thought would be, what if we each took this home? Uh, and we each, we, we tuck it into our Bible, we put it uh, up uh, in our bathroom, like on the mirror, you put it in your car, you know, wherever you need to put it. Um, and you can memorize it, you know, meditate on it, read it every day, med- and meditate, and memorize. And you can memorize whatever, you know, translation you'd like, uh, NIV, uh, NLT, NASB, RSV, right, the message, whatever it is, um, memorize it. And by the end of our series, my hope would be this, is that, uh, that each of us would be able to kind of repeat together together, almost like in unison, this prayer. Because it's as if then over the course of this semester, this, this time in Ephesians, uh, that we're praying this big prayer. And, and you'll understand why this is so big at the end. So uh, make sure you got one of these. If you didn't this week or for some reason we're out, we'll get you more of this next week and they'll always be available. So make sure you get uh, one of these. Uh, but it's not just the card that's new for, uh, for this series. Uh, you can go online uh, if, you, if you would. Go online at some point and you can click a, uh, the rooted card on our website, and, and it will actually show you um, every single date for the rest of this fall semester with every passage that we're going to be um, teaching through. And so if you want to read ahead, if you want to do any of those things, there's also uh, buttons to click on at the bottom. One is resources, uh, which has a whole host of videos and books for you to consider uh, as you kind of dive into Ephesians on your own, if that's what you would like. Uh, you can also, we'll be updating life group questions on a weekly basis, and so you can constantly be wrestling uh, with your life group or on your own with those questions. Uh, as well, there's also going to be a spot, another button, uh, that will have the, the upcoming week's worship songs. And so if you're someone who wants to, to really get ready for Sundays and, and to listen to those songs ahead of time, uh, Brady will be putting those up. So uh, it's going to be a great series. This is a series um, for me that's especially important uh, because Ephesians holds uh, a very special place in my own heart. So when I was a, a senior in high school, um, I was trying to figure out where I wanted to go to college and was kind of wrestling with a bunch of different options. And the University of Nebraska um, was always kind of on there because I'm a, a natural born um, Husker that way. And, uh, and so just because I grew up there. And so, but I had a friend who lived down the road uh, whose name was Brandon. And Brandon, Brandon did not know Jesus uh, through high school until about his junior year he came to know Christ. And I didn't know Brandon. Brandon and I were in di- totally different circles. I was kind of in the sporting world and he was in the drama uh, and plays and all that stuff. And uh, I'm just a terrible, terrible actor, so I didn't do any of those things. Um, and so, but Brandon, he went away to college. And when Brandon came back, Brandon was a totally different person because he had been like falling in love with Jesus just, just 
just super intimately. And so what Brandon did is that even though he lived four houses down from me and we didn't really know each other that well, he started showing up at my door. Rap, rap, rap. Ding, ding, ding. And he'd be like, Seth, let's go grab a coffee. Let's go hang out. Okay, you're paying, right? Great, I'm in. I'm a senior in high school. I'll take any food that can go through my mouth, you know? Um, and so, um, so Brandon and I started spending time together. And I thought, this is actually a pretty cool guy. And uh, he went back to school, and uh, he invited me at one point. He said, Seth, here's what I'd love. I'd love for you to come visit the University of Nebraska. Just come visit. That's it. That's all I'm asking. I said, great, I'll do that. So I went up, I drove up, and spent the weekend with him. And all I did was just eat meals, follow him everywhere he went, like, you know, just kind of a weird person. Uh, and, uh, and everywhere he went, I went. And uh, it was awesome. And by the time, and I wish I could tell you all about that weekend, because there's so many good pieces. But by the time I left that place and was driving home, I was a pastor's kid, thought I had all the right answers, thought I was on the right track, and driving home, here's what was sticking out in my heart. Brandon loves Jesus in a way that I don't. You see, Brandon was so intimately connected to Jesus, and I was like, man, I want that really bad, and there was just something pulling at me hard, and so I said, you know what, I'm going to go to the University of Nebraska, so I went, and I started doing life there, and life was still a struggle, I still had a lot of sin going on, and in the depths and the recesses of my heart, and in my own rhythms, Brandon eventually introduced me to a guy named John, and John starts meeting with me on a weekly basis, uh, and we start memorizing scripture together. We go for prayer walks together, and one day, I remember this very clearly, it was my buddy Ben and I and John sitting on the second floor of the rec center at the University of Nebraska, and I remember the sun kind of filtering through the windows. We sat on these really uncomfortable, like, you know, college couches, and, uh, but here we are, and we open up the book of Ephesians and we crack it open, and we start to read. And as we read, it was like this light just flipped on in my head, and, and who God was and what he had done, and all the mess in my own life just became so clear. And I just felt all of this, this junk start rolling off of my shoulders. And I was like, this is a moment that God is doing a work in me. It's very, very powerful. And I tell you those stories because it's a little bit of a shameless plug, because anytime I can get disciple-making stories in there, it's good. So my encouragement to you from the very start, apart from Ephesians, but, but connected, is this. Find someone who loves Jesus more than you do and spend time with them. It's awesome. It's great. It's great. You'll find your ways drawn to Jesus in ways you can never do on your own, right? So we're in this new uh, series that's going to be uh, in, in Ephesians. Um, and this morning, my, my job, my goal is just to introduce it, okay? So we're going to look at the first two verses, but really we're just going to kind of pull out two things from there and kind of set up the framework for this book before we really dive in this next week, okay? So Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 1 and 2, here's what it says. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints, which is really just another way of talking about Christians, to those who are Christians or Christ followers, uh, in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul wrote 13 out of our new, um, 13 of our 27 New Testament letters. In fact, Ephesians is actually um, crowned by many as the pinnacle of, of Paul's work. 
is just an exceptional um, piece of work, and we'll see that. Um, but here, this is a very standard greeting from Paul, very standard greeting, you know, grace to you, peace to you. But I want to just pull out two things to help us understand um, the, the book that we're about to enter. And one is that it's written by a guy named Paul. Paul, uh, formerly known um, as Saul, and you can read his story uh, in Acts kind of 7 through 9, and so you want to go back and read that this week, and actually continues past chapter 9, but that's that kind of conversion area for him, and Saul was a pretty much a, a tremendously bad dude, okay? So Saul was all out just over and over and over to persecute the church. He wanted to make church just terrible. He wanted Jesus gone. He wanted Christians gone. He was at the stoning of Stephen and, and, and all these things. And so, so Saul was this bad guy. But, but somehow, like, God, like, gets a hold of Saul uh, and changes his life and takes the, the, the most unlikely person and makes him into the greatest missionary, that the church has seen, you know, and it's just crazy. So this is who, this is who is writing the letter, Saul become Paul, and you can check out his story in Acts 7 through 9. But he's writing to a group of people who are in the city of Ephesus, and this is significant. Why? Um, because, and we've said this many times, and we will continue to say it, the Bible was written uh, for us, but it was not written to us, which means that when Paul wrote this book, he's writing to a totally separate group of people in a totally different city across the world at a totally separate time. And so we need to understand and put ourselves into those shoes to help understand what Paul is saying to the people in Ephesus, okay? So check out this map. Um, this map uh, actually shows every single city that Paul went to in his missionary journeys. So you can see that the breadth of his ministry is quite large, right? Um, the very left, you can see that's Italy kind of coming down with uh, Sicily, Sicilia or Sicily, kind of that bottom left. And then uh, in the middle is Greece, okay? And then kind of body of water to the right is the Aegean Sea. And right across from, from Greece into Asia Minor is the city that's called Ephesus. Okay, and Ephesus is significant because it was one of the, the most wealthy and richest uh, cities and most important cities in the entire Mediterranean world. It's one of the largest cities. It used to be this mega port city that was right on the Aegean Sea. Uh, if you look at photos today, in today's world, you'll find that it's actually about four miles inland because of this river sifting that's happened, and so it's kind of changed the location of the body of water. But, but back then, this is where it was. It was a hubbub uh, of busyness, of wealth, of commodities, of all those types of things. Um, and it was also the capital of the senatorial province, which means that it was a main spot uh, for things like politics. It was just huge, just overrun with all these, these other types of things. But they're also known for baths. They had like running, running baths, gymnasiums. Uh, they had coliseums uh, for animals and for, or excuse me, uh, gladiators. Um, like that type of thing, Colosseums are gladiators and animals, and so they did those types of things. They had both civic, um, uh, well, they had civic agoras, and so like there's just this constant hubbub of all of that type of stuff. But Ephesus was known for two primary things, and the first one uh, is the is the is this. It's the theater. Look how big this thing is. Can you imagine Jesus's world, the time of Paul? going, and, and this is like, I mean, this is like NDSU Stadium, you know? You know how many people fit in this thing? 
24,000 people. 24,000 people. In fact, it's even a part of Paul's own story. When he is in Ephesus, uh, these people drag him to the theater. They drag Paul to this very space. And they debate and dialogue, and they actually have to close it down because they, they might be like disrupt the city. They might be found con- in contempt. And so Paul was even here. This is crazy. So theater is a big one. But the second one is a little bit more important, and that is this. And it's not standing today, but it's the Temple of Artemis. This is a, just a, a rendering, an artist's rendering of what it would have looked like kind of up on the hill, these massive stone steps. Artemis was one of the Greek-Roman gods that they had kind of converted and taken into their own worship, uh, and uh, very, very significant. So this building, uh, in and of itself, was the largest building of its time in all of antiquity. Largest building. It's, it's over a football field in its size. First century, remember this. This is crazy, right? This is the temple of Artemis, right? And so these people, this is the, like, Artemis was huge uh, in, in the life of the people. It was, um, it was made from wood paneling, cedar roof beams, um, and it was actually one of the seven wonders of the world. And so if you uh, went to the Ephesus, you knew of the temple of Artemis because it was engrossed in every single part of every person's life. Now, they were polytheistic, so they had lots of gods, and she was just one, but she was one of the main ones, and people knew knew of her. In fact, people had, most likely, households had these little silver carved images of Artemis in their home. You begin to realize it's not just, it's not just commercialized, it's very personal. And this is, they're so ingrained into Artemis that at one point, get this, at one point, um, when they were under siege from the outside, they were under attack, and what they did is that they, they tied a rope from the temple, so probably just wrap it around one of those pillars, and they tied this rope, and they took it all the way to the wall. It's kind of like a large game of telephone. It's like hope is that the magic and the power of Artemis would funnel through this rope and go into the wall, and it would protect them. I will give you one guess, because you don't need two, as to whether or not that worked. It didn't work, if you're still wondering. It, doesn't, it didn't work, right? They're so engrossed in this, right? This culture, um, this worship. Um, and it was, so the city, Ephesus, was, was the most open to magicians, to sorcerers, to all these forms of paganism, right? And so it's this massive, massive city. And so if you were to walk into this group, you went into the city, and you see this building, and you see Artemis in people's homes, and you know how wealthy and rich this place is, if you're Paul, you're walking into this, and you're on the outside going, man, Paul, what? Like, why even try? This seems way too big of a deal. There's no way. There's no way that God, I mean, I know that God is big, and I know that God is powerful, but really, like this type of place, people who are into this type of worship, you think that this is going to work. And Paul enters in his second missionary journey, and he has this very productive time, actually. He starts at the synagogue, a local synagogue, and that doesn't really work well, so he's there for about three months, and then he moves um, to, the, to the house of Tyrannus. Uh, and there, for two years, Paul dialogues and debates with people over and over and over and over. Two years. It's incredible. And guess what? So many people came to know Christ 
That, that in the end, all of these people, they come out of their homes and they bring with them, and this will show you how deeply entrenched in the, in the arts of, of this cultic worship, this paganism, uh, this magician and sorcery, all these people bring their sorcery books from their home, and together, these new Christians, in this symbolic gesture, they burn all of their sorcery books. It's like we're moving away from the old and moving into the new. Guys, this is such a huge deal. Um, the, the, the estimated cost of the books that they burned, and Acts tells us this in Acts 19, the estimated cost of these books um, collectively was around 50,000 pieces of silver. One day's wage in that time was, was a piece of silver. That's 50,000 days wages of sorcery books. We're moving on, right? You're like, God shows up and does something absolutely incredible in this city. You think, man, it's way too big, and yet God does something. He shows up in powerful, powerful way. And so a couple of years pass, and, and Paul is then later arrested, and he is actually in prison in Rome, and he writes this letter to the people at Ephesus, right? And so that's where this letter comes from. I'm going to shift over to our board here uh, for a second um, because I just want to just show you that the, the book itself for the letter, really, from Paul to the people of Ephesus or the Ephesians as we call them, is, is, is broken into two parts. And the first part is chapters 1 through 3, okay? Chapters 1 through 3. And what we're going to do is we're going to call this, we're going to kind of give it a title, and we're going to say that this is God's story, okay? This is God's story. Uh, and really what it is, is it's this thanksgiving. It starts with this amazing, amazing thanksgiving from Paul as he writes this letter about how great God is in his purposeful plan that he started in the very beginning. God's great gospel purpose plan that started all the way back like with, with Noah and then Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and it goes all the way through. But there's something that's changing in this story. Because what started with Abraham and for only those people, God's plan of salvation was for his chosen people, which was the Jewish people, the Hebrew people. But it wasn't open really to anybody else unless you adopted fully into all of the laws and religions. And so, but then Jesus enters into the story and what happens is that all of a sudden, this mystery is being revealed as Paul talks about it. It's no longer, salvation is no longer just for the Jews, it's actually for everybody, for the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles is just this word for, for anybody who's not a Jew. So basically everybody in this room would probably raise their hand and say, praise Jesus for this missionary journey, for the way that God gave Paul this, this revelation, because the mystery is no longer just for the Hebrews, it's for us as well, this salvation story. It's this incredible, incredible thing. And so that's what the first three chapters are about. But then you come over here to the second part, and it begins, actually it begins with the word therefore, um, which means that what we're talking about here really stems out of everything that's happening here. So here we have chapters four through six. And here we might call it this, but 
right? This is our story. Like, this is like, like where, where reality happens. Because all of these things over here that we need to believe about God, this is who God is, this is the way that he works, these are the things that I need to conceptually know, that I need to understand, and that I need to believe. And that is a rich thing. But that somehow needs to connect with my reality, what's going on in my life right? Like what's happening, like with the struggles uh, in in my life. And so what Paul addresses is that he addresses, um, in some sense, like why you and I are different from other people. Because he talks about these things called spiritual gifts. And he says, well, this person's probably going to have, they have that spiritual gift, and that one has that one, and this person has this one, right? And everybody has a different spiritual gift. And so you're kind of left at the end going, man, like, why, why am I different? How am I wired? What is God really, who has God really made me to be? And what am I really supposed to do? And how am I different from everybody else? So that's one of the questions that he addresses. Um, one, another one, is this kind of like this idea of new identity, right? This is what, who God is, and this is what he says is true about me, but, but guess what? I don't really feel that way, because maybe I've lived in sin for so long that I feel calloused, and, and I just feel really greedy, and that even though I know what I believe, I feel like I'm in a dark, dark place. Like life or light doesn't really have a spot uh, in, in my life. Maybe um, part of what Paul is addressing is he, maybe your like, marriage is a struggle. Maybe your marriage is in shambles. It's like it's so hard, right? Maybe singleness is hard. Uh, maybe it's your parenting because he addresses that in the next part. Like parenting is so hard. He addresses the idea of work. And you're like, hey, like, I, I have no joy I find no joy in my work. I am so done. And if you're like a student and you're like, I hate school, no joy in school, he addresses that, right? There's this disconnect between these things that happen in life, this information about who God is and the way that this is affecting my reality and the struggles and the mess and, and the grossness that happens in my life. Maybe you just feel like Satan is constantly attacking you over and over and over and over again. So specifically, Ephesians as a book, as a letter, is written to these people in this city who've given up on the old, right? It's specifically written to them about how they have been embraced into this new covenant family. It's no longer just for Abraham, it's now for everybody. And so that's the specific purpose. But there's this very practical question and purpose that we today need to wrestle with because we're not those people in their their same context. So how does this then connect to us? Because what we want to know, what I want to know is how does God God's story impact my story? How does God's story connect with and impact my story? That's the question, right? How many of you guys like salt, salty things, salty foods? Great, a good number of you. Um, I love garlic. I mean, if you sprinkle, if you put garlic, if you put paprika or smoked paprika, that's a hard word to say, um, and salt, if you put that on food in whatever heavy dose, it doesn't matter. I love it, and salt especially. The, the chemical compound for salt, it was, many of us probably know, is NaCl. That's sodium and chlorine. And when you put those two things together, what you get is sodium chloride, right? And sodium chloride, or NaCl, or salt, is this, is this 
right? It's this compound that when you add it to food, it adds this rich, dense depth of flavor, and it makes your mouth water, right? And it's so, so good. That's NACL. That's when it's together. But here's the, here's the, here's the kicker. When you separate NA from CL and you have them individually, they become really dangerous, potentially even deadly. Together, they make NACL, which is great. It's salt. It's so good. But separate, they are actually very dangerous. And so when we think about, um, when we think about our board, when we think about God's story and our story, we think about chapters one through three. This is all about who God is, right? And when we think about this, we go, okay, so this is, this is about all of the information, all of the good things I need to know about who God is and how he's working in the world. And we could use the word orthodoxy, which is really just right belief. What are the right beliefs? that I need? What are the things conceptually I need to understand? But over here, you have orthopraxy, which is the idea of living it out. How does this actually get lived out in my life, in my real life scenarios, in my real world? Now together, they're really, really good. But if you move them apart and you focus on just one, they actually become quite dangerous. I'm gonna show you here for a second. So let's just, let's just talk about this over here for a second. So uh, chapters one through three, right? This is all about who God is and what he uh, is doing in the world. If I focus too heavily on this type of a person uh, or being this type of a person and separate it or disconnect it from this, here's who I'm going to become. I'm going to become a guy who stands up here. He's got his arm on his hips. He's got a head and he's got a hand with a finger that's pointing and saying, this is what you need to believe. This is a soapbox, by the way, right? Like, is this on a random square? Nope, that's soapbox, okay. Now we're on the same page. This is what you need to believe. And we sometimes are that person. And we all have met people like this. This is what you need to believe. And it's hard. But you could be over here. And this person over here might be like this. You see, this person is just down on his knees and his arms because he is so overloaded with the sense of doing. This is who I need to be. This is what I need to do. And over time, it just begins to wear and sag on our shoulders, and it puts us down, right? So separate, these become very dangerous. But when you put them together in the middle, what you actually get is this person who's not bent over and who's not on a soapbox, but it's a person who's standing up straight in the joy of the Lord, this is what we're talking about. By the way, this, people, is where Christians are validated in today's world. It's not just this, it's not just this. We have gospel impact in this world when we are right here. When we are both. When we are not just sodium and we are not just chlorine, but we are N-A-C-L. Because when we live upright in the joy of the Lord and there's a connection between these two things, we become like salt of the earth. Do you get that? Right? N-A-C-L. 
Now, I want to just simplify this even more for a second because you're like, hey, I, help me simplify it. Just one more, one more second. Chapters 1 through 3, love God. Chapters 4 through 6, love others. Sound familiar? That's because Jesus said it. Love God, love others. It's amazing how it keeps coming back to Jesus. Right? What he said, love God, love others. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was fly fishing uh, and just for some personal rest. And, uh, and I was moving down the, the creek and I found this spot and, and, uh, and it was right underneath the bridge. And I was super excited because I kid you not, I counted 50 rainbow trout. I was like, oh man, I'm going to slay it. <laughs> And I start putting on things, and I start going, and I start casting, and I cast, and I cast, and I cast. Nope, nothing, so I change. Cast, 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 change. Uh, either they were full, or I am a terrible fly fisherman. But in the midst of that, as I'm standing there for 45 minutes, trying to catch just one of 50, I hear this noise. <coughs> and I looked to my left, and I was like, I don't see anything. And so I keep casting. 10 minutes. <coughs> I look to my left. Nothing. What's going on? More casting. All of a sudden I hear, <coughs> and I look and I see, <coughs> a 75 foot tree just fell. <laughs> Straight down the hill. I now know, I kid you not, I was, well, first thing I thought was, I'm so glad I was not under that tree, <laughs> right? Praise Jesus. Uh, second thing I thought was, now I know the answer. If a tree falls in the forest, <laughs> right? It's funny, it doesn't work because I was actually there. I know, it doesn't make sense, but, but it happened. I mean, I, 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 when has that ever happened before? But as I was watching this in slow motion, here's what I saw. I saw that the backside of the tree was rooted deep into the soil, but the front side was all eroded. And the roots were exposed, so it had nothing. And what a tree needs to stand up straight is both sides. And without one or the other, the tree will fall. You see where I'm going, right? If we remove one of these things, the tree will fall. I want to share with you a couple of questions. Um, I think these are really powerful. They're questions from the 1960s, and then I'm going to compare them to questions from today. Okay, get this. Questions from the 1960s. First one, is there a God? It's a great question. Well, yes, thank you. We're answering. Okay, yes, we agree. You're all at church. Awesome. Uh, there is a God. Hooray, hurrah. But this is their question. Is there a God, right? That's a big thing. By the way, people aren't asking that question as much today. Okay, second question, is Christ the only way to God? Third question, did Christ actually rise from the dead? Good question. Fourth question, are the Bible documents reliable? Great question, right? These are all really good, right? You're sensing a pattern, very much information here, right? Information driven. Last question, do science and the Bible agree? Okay? So really, this is, you could throw a big fancy word on this called epistemology, which is really how can we know what's true, what's ultimately true uh, in, in the cosmos, in the world, in life, right? So this is the questions that the people are asking 60 years ago. I want to show you the questions that people are asking in today's world, okay? And get ready, because they're not easy. First one, why are Christians imposing their morality on other people? Is there a God? <laughs> Versus that, okay? Second question, 
How can I trust the church that has done terrible things in the name of Christ? Third question. What about different forms of hypocrisy? You see, what we're seeing, we're sensing this pattern because what that question is asking is that we profess to believe something and yet we don't do that. We see the disconnect. Number four, does your belief actually transform lives? Again, same thing, disconnect. This is what you believe, but does it have any effect on the way that you live? Last question, does your church serve those who are in need or is it another self-serving group? You guys sense and see the, the, the shift here, right? It moves from intellectual to ethical. And there is a disconnect between what we believe, what we know is true, and the way that we live. And there's this underlying assumption in today's world with younger people that believe that maybe there is a God. They're not asking the same questions, but they're asking the morality and the ethical questions, the things that show us that there has been a disconnect between our head, our heart, and our hands. Right? That's a powerful thing. It's like disconnecting Christ from Christianity. Right? That's kind of what this is. And so then, if, if I were to say this, like maybe if you'd be really honest, you would say, I have been asking some of those questions myself. I've been asking some of those questions. Maybe you know people that are asking those questions. Maybe you just sense the disconnect in your own heart and in your own life. But here's this question. How do these two things come together? Okay? How do these two things come together? I want to go back and just do this. Really fast, because this is what's so great about the book of Ephesians. You've got one through three and four through six. And yet, in between these two, in between these two chapters, right, is you've got chapter three, verses 14 through uh, 21. And it has all to do with this idea of love. It's a prayer. It's a deep, powerful prayer. Guys, this is bigger than Sleepless in Seattle. Okay? This is bigger than While You Were Sleeping. This is bigger than any Hallmark movie that ever existed. Thank you. But it's this concept of love. And it's a prayer. And here's what Paul says in Ephesians 3, 14. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that, here's the purpose, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, you read this in your own time and you can pass right through it, but wow, is that deep. I want that. 
That's the type of love that I want. And we'll unpack this later in the series, but I just want to share with you two things. Paul says, I want you to comprehend it, and I want you to know it in a way that it surpasses knowledge. First one, comprehend. He says the breadth, the height, the width, and the depth, right? What is he talking about? Well, I I don't know, but I cannot help but wonder that what Paul is doing is he's contrasting the dimensions of the temple of Artemis with the love of Jesus, because when you walk up and you take the step up into the temple of, a the- or of Artemis, you look around, you're like, man, Artemis is so big. This is the largest building in all of antiquity. She is the most powerful God in the world, the cosmos. And Paul's like, yeah, go in, check it out. It's a big building, whoop-de-doo. Go that way for infinity. Go that way for infinity. Go that way for infinity. And go that way for infinity. And then you'll find the love of Christ. That's what he's talking about, I think. The height, the depth. And he says, guess what? You can stand like at the four corners of all four states. And you can understand conceptually the directions. You know, you can comprehend that God's love is big. But guess what? He says, not only can you comprehend it, you can take a step into it. And you can know it in a way that surpasses comprehension. You can experience the love of Christ. That's the difference between Artemis and Jesus. It's incredible, right? It's absolutely incredible. I want to just end end with this. I think that for, for many of us, you know, we come to this time and we go, man, I... Maybe for some of us, we're, we're living, we're living in the disconnect, that there's some level of disconnect inside of our hearts between, between that and that in our lives. And so maybe for some of us, uh, we go, I'm just asking, I'm, I'm asking those questions from before. That's me. I admit, I'm in that spot. Maybe that's you asking some of those questions. Maybe you're just like bored of God. You're bored with God. You're like, I've been there, done that right? I'm, I'm just jumping through the motions at this point. Maybe you're having a hard time reconciling who God is and why your life is so hard, right? Maybe that's the challenge. Uh, maybe, this is very common in today's world, maybe you're just giving up on the church because the church is living over here and not over here because we're not making an impact in the world. A lot of young people are leaving the church because the church isn't making an impact in the world. Maybe that's you, Maybe you're not confident in what God says is true about you. You say, I know that's what Scripture teaches, but I just don't feel it. It's not me. It's just not, not in it. Maybe you've just been living in sin for far too long. You're so calloused. If any of that is you, or for whatever, whatever the disconnect is that you perceive in yourself or the disconnect that you perceive in the world, let me encourage you, don't give up. Don't give up. I want you to remember Ephesus because when Paul walked in that city, you would go, this is far too big of a task. And yet, God is in the business of doing the impossible because what he says at the end of this prayer, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Don't give up because God is in the power of doing something big. And so here's what I want to challenge is that as we, as we enter in, as we jump into the 
into the book or to the letter of Ephesians, I want you to think about, about this idea. Uh, if, if you were to enter into the temple of Artemis, you would step up and you, you could walk from one end to the other. Yes, it's big, but you could get to the end really quickly. But with Jesus' love, it's like stepping into the vast cosmos. And so here's what I want to challenge. I want you to think about the letter of Ephesians as us together going on a journey, entering into a whole new depth, a whole new vastness of God's love, all the while praying this massive prayer, this God-sized prayer that says he can do far more than we can ever ask or imagine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we finish our time uh, this morning, Lord, I pray that you would make us people who stand up straight, people who are not on boxes pointing and shouting and people uh, who are not bent over and weighed down with the struggles and, and the weights of life and reality, but that we would be people who stand up straight in the gospel, who understand the inflow and the overflow, people who believe right things but have right action that accompany that, that we would be a people in Fargo-Moorhead who are salt of the earth, that we are N-A-C-L, together, combined. And so, Father, Lord, I pray that in the midst of this, that, that you just draw us deeper and deeper and deeper, rooted into the vastness of your love. In your name we pray, amen.